Section 13 of Sir Francis Drake by Julian Corbett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8 The Dragon Loosed. Part 1. Warned by his disappointment of three years ago, Drake threw himself with all his vigor into the work of organizing his force. His parliamentary duties still engaged his attention, and in February 1585, he was married to Elizabeth Sydenham, the young heiress of a knightly and warlike house in Somersetshire. But nothing was allowed to interfere with his mission. As early as November in the past year, Walsingham had summoned his son-in-law, Captain Christopher Carlyle, from Ireland to command the troops, and in the early spring things were so far advanced that Philip took alarm. His imagination multiplied the havoc which Drake had made with one ship by the numbers of the gathering squadron, and he trembled for his Indies. His alarm was premature. Once more, as Elizabeth felt the hot breath of war upon her cheek, she shrank from its horrors like the very woman she was. Drake's work was stopped, and he was left to fret as the weary diplomatic dance began again but beneath it all the mill of philip's purpose went grinding on relentlessly he used the lull only to invite a large fleet of english corn ships to the relief of his famine-stricken provinces and then as they lay unsuspecting in his ports he seized them every one never once was the growing armada out of his mind this atrocious outrage was but to feed his monster and swift and sharp was the retribution it earned. It was in the last days of May, and ere June was out, far and near the seas were swarming with English privateers, and El Draque was unchained. Fortified with letters of mark to release the embargoed vessels, he hoisted his flag at Plymouth on the Elizabeth Bonaventura, and there, by the end of July, in all jollity and with all help and furtherance himself could wish, a formidable fleet gathered round him. Frobisher was his vice-admiral, Francis Knowles his rear-admiral, and Thomas Fenner his flag-captain. Christopher Carlyle was there too as his lieutenant-general, with a full staff and ten companies under him. No such privateering squadron had ever been seen before. It consisted of two battleships and eighteen cruisers, with their complement of store-ships and pinnaces, it was manned with a force of soldiers and sailors to the number of two thousand three hundred, and it is not surprising that constant difficulties delayed its departure. Yet delay was dangerous in the extreme. The Spanish party had again taken heart, and were whispering caution to the Queen's ear. Even Burley grew nervous that she would repent, but at last he got sailing orders sent off, and with a sigh of relief entered in his diary that Drake had gone. To his horror came back a letter from the admiral still dated from Plymouth instead of from Finisterre, as he had hoped, and he set down a warning to urge the immediate departure of the fleet. August wore away, and the equipment was still incomplete, when Drake, who was all in constant dread of a countermand, was alarmed by Sir Philip Sidney's suddenly appearing at Plymouth in announcing his intention of accompanying the expedition haunted still by the memory of the tragedy he could never forget, and determined to have no more to do with courtiers and amateur soldiers, 
he secretly sent off a courier to betray the truant's escabeau to the court he must even be suspected in his desperation of having set men in wait to intercept and destroy any orders that were not to his liking the precaution was unnecessary sydney was peremptorily stopped and ere any letter came to stay drake too the wind had shifted northerly and all unready as he was he cleared for finisterre there he arrived on september twenty sixth he was clear away but that was all he was short both of water and victuals there had not even been time to distribute the stores he had or to issue his general orders to the fleet he smelt foul weather too and determined to complete somewhere what he had left undone at plymouth he boldly ran in under the lee of the bayona islands in vigo bay the old queen's officers were aghast entirely dominated by the prestige of spain they believed that nothing could be done against her except by surprise and they trembled to see their admiral thus recklessly fling his cards upon the table but he knew what he was doing as with sagacious bravado he had sprung ashore at santa marta and had mocked the spanish fleet in cartagena harbour so now before he struck he exulted that his unfleshed host should hear him shout en garde to the king of spain that they should listen while he cried that england cared not for spying traitors for she had nothing to conceal that her fleets meant to sail when and where they would and philip might do his worst it was a stroke of that divine instinct which marks out a hero from among able captains the magic touch of a great leader of men under which the dead fabric of an army springs into life and feels every fibre tingling with the strong purpose of its heart two leagues from the town of bayona the fleet anchored and resolved at once to display his whole strength and exercise his men in their duties drake ordered out his pinnaces and boats for a reconnaissance in force his boldness bore immediate fruit the governor sent off to treat and by nightfall it was arranged that troops should land and in the morning be allowed to water and collect what victuals they could but at midnight the threatened storm rolled up the troops were hurriedly re-embarked and barely in time to escape disaster the flotilla regained the ships for three days the gale continued threatening the whole fleet with destruction till it was got safely up above vigo there the whole of the boats in which the panic-stricken inhabitants had embarked their property were captured and though by this time the governor of bayona had arrived with a considerable force he was compelled to permit drake to carry out his purpose in peace by october eighth he was out in the bayona road again waiting for a wind to waft him on his way and it was reported at the spanish court that he had gone toward the indies the consternation was universal the marquis of santa cruz high admiral of spain and the most renowned naval officer in europe declared that not only the african islands but the whole pacific coast the spanish main and the west indies were at the corsair's mercy and told his master that a fleet of forty sail must be instantly equipped for the pursuit but though for another fortnight drake rode defiantly at the bayona anchorage not a limb of philip's inert machinery could be moved against him and while the chivalry of spain chafed under their sovereign's deliberation the second blow was struck 
Madeira was passed by and the Canaries spared, for Palma, which Drake intended should revictual him, showed so bold a front that he would not waste time in trying to reduce it. It was on another point that his implacable glance was fixed. Five years ago, at Santiago, the chief town of the Cape Verde Islands, young William Hawkins, a personal adherent of Drake's, had been made the victim of some such treachery as his father and captain had suffered together at Veracruz. From that hour it was doomed. In the middle of November the fleet arrived in the road and the troops landed. Threatened by Carleo from the heights above the valley where it lies, and from the sea by Drake, without a blow the town was abandoned to its fate. For ten days the island was scoured for plunder and provisions, and ere the month was out the anchorage was desolate and Santiago a heap of ashes. Drake's vengeance was complete, and exulting like Gideon in the devastation that marked his course, he led his ships across the Atlantic. Is there a moment in history more tragic than that? For the first time since the ages began, a hostile fleet was passing the ocean, the pioneer of how many more that have gone and are yet to go, the forerunner of how much glory and shame and misery. What wonder if the curse of God seemed upon it? Hardly had it lost sight of land when it was stricken with sickness. In a few days some three hundred men were dead and numbers of others prostrate and useless, but in unshaken faith and with reverent wonder at the inscrutable will of heaven, Drake never flinched or paused. His only thought was how to check the evil. At Dominica he got fresh provisions from the natives and refreshed his sick with a few days on shore. At St. Christopher he again halted to spend Christmas and elaborate the details of his next move. The point where Philip was now to feel the weight of his arm was the fair city of Santo Domingo in Hispaniola. It was by far the most serious operation Drake had yet undertaken. Hitherto his exploits had been against places that were little more than struggling settlements, but Santo Domingo was indeed a city, stone-built and walled and flanked with formidable batteries. It was held by a powerful garrison, as Drake learned from a captured frigate, and a naval force had been concentrated in the harbour for its defence. As the oldest town in the Indies, its renown had hitherto secured it from attack, and in Spain it was held the queen city of the colonial empire. The moral effect of its capture would be profound, and besides, from Virginia, the governor of Raleigh's new colony had sent home a fabulous report of its wealth. Drake was fully alive to the gravity of the task before him. His dispositions had never been so elaborate, and they evince at least a touch of that military genius which the strategists of the next century denied him. While the sick were recruiting, he sent forward a squadron to reconnoitre, and if possible to open communications with the maroons who infested the hills for three days the garrison was thus exhausted with constant alarms and then on january first fifteen eighty six the whole fleet appeared in the bay night fell and as darkness closed the eyes of the harassed garrison with the fleet all was activity in boats and pinnaces the troops were being rapidly embarked and soon Drake in person was piloting the flotilla for the surf-beaten shore. At a point within the bay but some ten miles from the town, a practicable landing-place had been found. 
watch-houses overlooked it but watchmen there were none drake had got touch with the maroons by his directions a party of them had stolen down from the hills and as the sentries came out from the city in the evening swiftly and silently they had been every one dispatched thus unseen and unmolested the troops were successfully landed and then with pious and cheery farewells to carleill drake returned to the fleet to prepare the ground for the surprise End of section thirteen